You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to the special 600th episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight it's, oh yeah, I said that, it's the 600th episode of Fusion Patrol. So we thought we would do something a little different. I promise you, we are not going to go through Star Trek episode by episode. But I thought that considering that that my personal journey into loving science fiction television came about through Star Trek, that this would be a good time to take a look at the very first, the unaired pilot of Star Trek from 1965, and uh, that is The Cage. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, more about it after we do this <clears throat> somewhat wordy synopsis of a somewhat wordy episode. All right, The Cage. The USS Enterprise is en route to the Vega colony to tend their wounded and replace dead crew members after a conflict on Rigel 7 when they receive a distress call sent 18 years ago from the SS Columbia. With no evidence that there were survivors, Captain Pike decides to continue to Vega. The crew deaths on Rigel 7 are weighing heavily on him, and he confides in the ship's doctor that he's considering resigning. Dr. Boyce is skeptical. Life is for meeting challenges, and Pike is doing exactly what Pike should be doing. Besides, if not Starship Captain, what would he do? I could go home to Earth and ride horses and have picnic lunches, or even become a trader in Orion's sex slave women, says Pike. But time for daydreaming is over. The Enterprise has confirmed there were survivors from the crash, and Pike redirects the ship to Talos IV to investigate. Talos IV is a barren, desolate planet and they find a survivor's encampment of old men and one almost hypnotizingly beautiful young woman. She is Vina, who was born just before the ship crashed. She lures Pike away from the encampment to show him her etchings, a discovery, and before he realizes what's happening, all the survivors in their encampment disappear, and Telosians come out of the ground and capture him. Pike finds himself in a menagerie with other strange life forms. A group of Telosians come to observe him. They are communicating telepathically, discussing the new specimen. And although Pike can overhear their telepathic thoughts, they are ignoring him. They leave with the ominous comment that the experiment can begin. Aboard the Enterprise, the ship's first officer, known only as Number One, is holding a staff meeting discussing the situation. Dr. Boyce warns that the mental power of these aliens are so great that they can make anyone see anything they want to, and the illusion is so real that it is impossible to ignore. They could make the crew destroy the Enterprise. Nonetheless, they must try to rescue Captain Pike. Number one orders the ship's power to be redirected to the planet where they can try to blast their way into the underground complex. Pike is standing in his cage, and suddenly he's on Rigel 7 again reliving his recent fight there, but with a difference. This time, there's a fairy tale princess for him to rescue, in the form of Vina. Pike quickly realizes that this is all an illusion, and his brain tells him that he should be safe in his cage. But is this all an illusion? Why did they pick Vina again? Why not some other fantasy woman? They are about to be attacked by the monstrous Kalar, and Vina seems terrified. 
Pike's questioning of her gets ambiguous answers at best, but eventually he has no choice but to fight and defeat the Kalar. And then he is back in his cage, this time with Vina. It's dawning on Pike that Vina might be real, but he gets no straight answers from her. The Enterprise crew attempt to blast the top of the Telosian's secret entrance, but even with the might of the Enterprise's engines, it makes no dent in it. Dr. Boyce, always the voice of optimism, suggests that maybe they did, but the Telosians are preventing them from seeing it. Pike continues questioning Vina, and he gets some info. The Telosians developed their mental powers and became addicted to living and reliving the lives of the creatures in their menagerie. They're even losing the knowledge to repair their own machines. Pike realizes that to maintain populations of animals, they'll need a breeding pair of humans. Vina confesses that she is a real human, and she disappears, screaming in pain, as the Telosians punish her. Later, the Telosians put food in Pike's cell, and the Keeper even speaks directly to him, expressing that they want their specimens to be happy in their new lives. The Keeper confirms that Vina was the sole survivor of the crashed ship. As Pike continues to be stubborn, the Keeper gives him his first taste of punishment. He is transported briefly to hell. He consumes his dinner. He discovers he can block their mind reading by holding hatred in his mind. And also, encouragingly, he demonstrates to the Keeper that he is protective towards Vina. And then he is on a picnic near his hometown with his two horses and his beautiful wife, Vina. He reflects that this is exactly what he'd been talking with Dr. Boyce about, and now he understands Boyce's answer to him. You have to face life head on and not run away. Stubborn to a fault, though, he continues to ply Vina with questions, trying to find a way for them to escape. She explains that over the years, she has been beaten by their manipulations, and they own her. She also explains that they plugged her idea of an ideal man from her mind and selected Pike. She can't help but love him. Pike's keepers realize that dark, deep fantasy is more compelling than pleasant memories, and so Pike is suddenly in a hedonistic palatial estate, presumably on Orion. He owns this den of inequity and is entertaining guests. The band plays, and one of Pike's green Orion sex slaves dances seductively for the appreciative guests. She is, of course, Vina, and Pike's resolve is beginning to weaken. Vina corners him with lust in her eyes. Aboard the Enterprise, Number One has formed a landing party. They're going to attempt to beam into the Telosian facility directly, but when the transporter is activated, only the women, Number One and Yeoman Colt, beam down. They arrive in Pike's cell, breaking Pike and Vina out of the illusion, much to Vina's disappointment. Although they still have their lasers and communicators, they are non-functional, and Pike throws them aside. The Keeper arrives and explains, Since you didn't want to get down to business with the first female specimen, we've brought you two more and you could choose which one you like. Both have got the hots for you. Aboard the Enterprise, Spock, now in command, decides to run. But it is too late. The Telosians shut down the ship. Looks like it's squatting time. Knowing that the Telosians cannot read his mind through strong violent emotions, he has been keeping a mad on, and eventually the Keeper pops in trying to retrieve the lasers. Pike pounces on him, and despite terrifying illusions, hangs on and threatens to break the Keeper's neck. He reasons that the laser actually worked and burned a hole in the cage, and it's true. With the Keeper hostage, they make their way to the surface where the top of the base was indeed blown away. They are still unable to contact the ship, and the Keeper tells him the truth. They want them on the surface. They want them to start a colony of slave humans to reclaim the planet. 
Pike tries to make a deal. I'll stay with Vina if you let my crewmen and the ship leave. But number one has other plans. It's wrong to create a colony of slaves, and she puts her laser on overload. It will explode soon, killing them all. In the nick of time, more Telosians arrive, having bothered to study the Enterprise history banks, and they have realized humans don't like to be in captivity, even when it's all fantasy perfect. Okay, you're too dangerous. You can leave. Number one and Yeoman Colt are returned to the Enterprise, but Pike is held back. Vina won't leave, and for his eyes only, it is revealed why. Vina is an old woman, horribly disfigured. The Telosians rescued her from the crash and healed her and put her back together but they'd never seen a human, and it apparently never occurred to them that humans might be bilaterally symmetrical lifelike like themselves and all of the specimens that we've seen so far, or indeed to scan her mind to see what she thought she and humans looked like. Pike agrees with her reasons to stay, and not only is she restored to beauty, but the Telosians give her the illusion that Pike has stayed behind with her. Back on the Enterprise, Pike is fresh and ready to go. He's had his vacation back home, and it's time to head on the end okay um let's start with um i i believe i don't want to put words in your mouth but i believe rather like babylon 5 you don't have a lot of star trek exposure i mean there's no one on the planet who doesn't have some star trek exposure but but <laughs> well i think in north be. korea they probably have secret copies of star trek but uh you know but you're not an active watcher of star trek if i am if i am correct there so I, yeah, I guess that would be a that would be a fair way of putting it. I mean, I have I have watched some episodes of the original series of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It used to it, they used to play it, I think, on you know in that six twenty five slot on BBC Two, and I would watch it from time to time. So, same sort of slot where they put things like Space nineteen ninety nine, and okay. I would find it relatively entertaining. But I have no idea how much of it. I have watched and I don't have any kind of in-depth knowledge. And to be honest, I probably haven't watched any for several decades. So, <laughs> so yeah, I am in effect with this. I am pretty much starting from the beginning with only the kind of most basic knowledge of the show and what it goes on to become. Okay. Well, and of course this episode is famously, um, we, we can talk more about it later, but but famously speaking, this was made as a pilot and the network rejected it. And we will definitely get to the reasons later on. But they made the, as far as I can tell, unprecedented decision to go ahead and let them make a second pilot. And the second pilot is what sold the show. And it features Captain Kirk on the, on the second pilot. And... Um, this kind of disappeared because, you know, when they went to the series, it was, uh, it's, it's been used, but for a variety of reasons, most, much of the, some of the episode was lost completely and, and was not re- restored to its entirety until the 1980s. So um, a lot of people never saw this as we watched it here. So um, just, you know, there's no background. There's you need to know nothing about Star Trek when you watch this episode. This is this is the show that somebody wanted to put down in front of you and say, "I'd like you to buy my TV series." What did you think? It doesn't, you know, as a as a casual watcher of the show, it doesn't feel like 
the Star Trek that I remember watching and being quite amused by. I, I mean, I, not that I wasn't amused by it. I mean, I think I think it's a it's an ambitious show, but probably not as ambitious as actual Star Trek was. To be honest, it's quite there's there's some kind of it it goes all in on the kind of hard sci-fi and the 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 kind of interesting philosophical ideas that they're 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 pursuing there it goes a lot softer on the kind of um the kind of campness that i think the episodes that i watched achieved now whether they were episodes from the first season of star trek or from later seasons so this was something that developed i could not tell you but in some ways this felt I know, I know this was 1965, but this felt almost a little bit old fashioned. It, it reminded me a bit of, well, the film we looked at a mere mm-hmm. hundred episodes ago, Forbidden Planet. And I'm sure, I'm sure the, the influence of that must have been felt. I'm absolutely. Uh, I think there are two things. Uh, one I've seen, which is, uh, Forbidden Planet and one I have never, it's a book I've never read, but apparently, I think it's called Space Cadets by Robert Heinlein was the other one that that has been cited by Rod. Roddenberry was not a Star Trek fan. Just we'll put this out there. He he was not a Star Trek fan. He stumbled upon this idea of being a way to tell stories he wanted to tell about ideas that he wanted to convey. Hang on, he wasn't a Star a, Trek fan. Star, science fiction, no. No, he was not. Ah, from, right. from okay. Back I'm going to say, if he's trying to sell his show to the network and he doesn't think it's any good, <laughs> I'm not surprised they rejected it. But did I say it, he wasn't a Star Trek fan? I meant science fiction fan. If if that's what I, I, I okay, I'm with you. Then. Said. Yeah. yeah. So um, he he uh, he'd had some problems. Um, he was the 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 head. We don't call him showrunners back then, but let's call him showrunner for the sake of argument of a show called the Lieutenant, which started uh, Gary Lockwood as a, I believe he was a, uh, an adjutant general in the, the military taking on legal cases. So it was a, it was an attorney drama in the military. And in those days, uh, if you wanted to portray the military in favorable lights on TV, they would give you everything. You, you, you <laughs> want to shoot on the base? Sure. You need extras in the background? Fine. You know, you want to drive a tank around? Gotcha. We got you back. You know, we, we love, we love portrayals of the military on TV because TV loves the military and, and we love what that does for our recruiting. And Roddenberry, you know, they availed themselves that, that cuts a show's budget down dramatically. And he wanted to tell challenging stories. And one of the stories that he wanted to tell had to do with racial discrimination on the base. I think there may have been a murder involved. I don't remember what the case, but it was certainly a violent, racially motivated violence. And I think it was like the white guy beats up the black guy and the back black guy fights back and the black guy gets arrested. And so our hero has to defend him and expose the racism. And I've not seen the episode. I've never seen an episode of the Lieutenant in my life. And, you know, they worked on that, the script and, and the, the, the studio said, yeah, yeah. Eh, not not a good idea. And then, you know, because they run the scripts by the military, the military said, uh, no, no, don't you dare. And he did it anyway, because that's the kind of stories he wanted to tell. And the military pulled their support out. And uh, that was the end of the show. <laughs> he, 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 
So in a way, he's kind of he's kind of got his military back, but now he's got a military that's not real, and and he's got a, a place where he can he can play with ideas that he likes, uh, social ideas, and he, he so that's where he stumbled across this idea, and, and uh, I. I you know, you're right. This is not like later Star Trek. They're, they're, the, the, the people are more human, I, I, I kind of want to say. But let's face it, Pike's in a pretty dark place when this episode starts. He, he's well, there's he's certainly a, lot, a happy a, guy. A, a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of self-pity for a pilot episode. It doesn't, it doesn't engage you necessarily. It doesn't make you warm to the character. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily feel like uh well fun viewing i mean it doesn't have to feel like fun viewing right it's just that right. there has to be i guess some other reason to to watch it and it just i don't know it seemed like a little it's a little strange of a way of starting the show because the actual kind of excitement on rigel 7 the fighting and the deaths and all of that isn't shown and yep. we're not going to go down to the planet and meet some strangers and aliens until we have gone through all of these kind of rather talky, downbeat, yeah, as you say, quite sort of dark conversations that, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't feel like a lively start to the series. Okay, that, I think that's fair. I, I, I think that's all fair. And I, I think, as you... You know, there it's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk in this episode. Even when he goes to his fantasy places, he spends his time talking. Okay, he goes home and Earth and his picnic, and what does he do? He spends his whole time having a dialogue with Vina about how we can get out of this place. And it, it's um, hmm, order. Do I present this in? There were some issues with Roddenberry. The networks didn't really like him, um, possibly because of his his lieutenant thing. Possibly because he had an attitude of doing what they told him not to do. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things they told him not to do was to cast his mistress uh, in the show. So, of course, she's <laughs> number one. He, 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 pitched, he pitched the series. There were a few outlines, uh, not outlines, but there were like one paragraph things. I think there's four or five of them. I could probably find them, but it, it doesn't matter. Um, and then when they agreed to go to pilot, and this kind of has to do with the the founding of Desilu Studios, which ultimately got bought out by Paramount um, and and NBC, they agreed to make a pilot, and so they had to pitch three more expanded ideas. And so he pitched out three. All three ultimately became episodes of Star Trek. Um, there's, there's this one, The Cage. This one that ultimately became called The Return of the Archons, which is about a planet uh, that is controlled and in conformity and has little or no individuality and and you know, I need to. And it's supposed to be idyllic life, but it's really miserable because eh. <laughs> it's like it's all boring and stuff. And and then another one called became Mud's Women, which is about uh, an inter- interstellar con man selling prostitutes to minors. And it, it's um, the the network picked this one because it was the hardest to do. It would be the hardest <laughs> to realize. Because they kind of wanted it to fail. <laughs> I mean, let's let's do that one. It's gonna it's gonna be the most expensive episode. It's gonna be the one that that you know you can fall flat on your face. And 
and I know we, we had a little accidental mix-up in which episode got watched or for you to watch. Uh, I watched both the original version, quote, 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 unquote, the original version, and the one where uh, CBS went back and, and redid the special effects. And I, I know you unfortunately got to watch the one with the uh, enhanced special effects, which I think are pretty good and are generally very, very faithful to the original. They're just not quite as crap, but they're not bad for 19. I mean, I, I, I assumed that some of the sort of the energy weapon laser things were enhanced in this. Whereas I would have to go back and of... look at that. It, it's more the ship shots and the planetary shots that are the mostly. Oh, right. Uh, Cause I mean, replaced. you mean the planetary shots from a distance or the actual yeah. surface of the planet? Yeah. Right, 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 from the yeah, distance, yeah. yeah. That 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 would make sense because the, the, as soon as you get onto the surface of the planet and you start looking at the oh, yeah, kind that's... of wispy plant life, it all feels very much studio bound and polystyrene, yes. which you know again feels very much like how Star Trek, how I remember Star Trek um, from from watching those episodes I watched twenty thirty years ago. So here's the thing, that it's really hard to put into context. There has been nothing like this on television in the United States. This this is, there is nothing. You, you can go back to shows like The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits. Those are very much a different a different idea. Yes, they were science fiction, but they were, you know, maybe the creature of the week or usually set on Earth in an old farmhouse kind of thing. This is... This is the first time where they've really tried to do something like Forbidden Planet, where they've created a whole world, if you will. And it, it just, it's hard now looking back on it to realize how much this didn't look like anything else. So polystyrene, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, what were they going to do? I mean, they're, they're building. No, no, no. I, think I, if you probably... I mean, it, it's, it is very much. Like, like, as I say, I remember the episodes I watched and I, it's part of the charm, I think. And you don't really expect anything. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's of its time. Mm. The The only thing was that I thought, you know, when you're enhancing the special effects, would they have, would they have done anything about that? And I'm not criticizing the fact that they hadn't. It just, I guess it's part they have... of the the issue for me of why they bother updating these special effects because certain aspects of the episodes always going to stand out as making it of its time. So I, I think it was the 4k, or the, the Blu-ray remasters. Um, you know, they went back to the original negatives when they were making Star Trek and they look fabulous. They look so good that things like you could see coffee stains on Spock's uniform. <laughs> so they'd have to go in and fix that. And but the special effects don't hold up when they upscale like that. And so they, at first, almost exactly a shot for shot recreation in high res in special effects and, and they look in, in CGI and they look good and they don't, they, they don't detract in a, in a sort of, wow, gee whiz, that's fantastic. Amazingly, totally out of place kind of way. They, they fit them in very nicely. There are some cases in the, over the course of the entire 79 episodes of the series where they remastered them, where they redid, they took out and replaced the cyclorama in the back. Mm. 
with something more realistic. Um, there have been a few shots in a few episodes that were particularly poorly done. So, you know, they had shots and, and they would reuse them over and over and over again. And sometimes the Enterprise would be doing something and they would show you a picture and it clearly wasn't doing that something. And so they they did a few shots like that where they changed it so that you can see it reflects what they're actually doing. And, and you know, there's one like the Doomsday Machine where they did soup up some of the exterior battle sequences where the Enterprise and the... And the uh, Oh, uh, I guess it's the constellation are are battling against the the thing again. Mm, creative choices along the way. I really don't think there was much in this one. I mm, yeah, I'd have to go back and watch the enhanced version to see if they changed the cyclorama of Mojave City in the background when he's there at his picnic. But apart from that, it it really does look mostly like it. The planet looks a little more realistic the in in the view screen and whatnot, but. But all in all, it's it's pretty faithful. It's pretty faithful to the original. Um, so for years after Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry went into what they call this his guru phase. And and I'm I'm sure I've said this in other episodes. Gene Roddenberry is not particularly a, a stellar example of a human being. And he's got he's got his flaws. I think that's what people usually he, he's a, a deeply flawed individual with but you know uh, with an idea that he ran with. He had the ideals. You know, always live up to some of them. Um, his serial adultering, um, his uh, famously when they when he had Alexander Courage compose the music for the Star Trek series for the theme, which they use a few times in this. He he, you know, they turned that music into him, and then he jotted some lyrics down and then submitted it to ASCAP or whichever organization it was, so that he could take coke crow credit for writing the music and get half the royalties. He's that kind of guy, um, which is why Alexander Courage didn't do a lot of work on the series after this point. And uh, they, they did not, that was not a happy situation. And I kind of wonder if he played the music three times throughout the course of the show, just to get more royalties off of it. I'm not sure, but that's the kind of guy he might've been. And, <laughs> but after Star Trek, he went on this college tour because Star Trek was big on the colleges for the big ideas. And so he became this sort of guru He'd go around to sell out audiences. And he'd talk about Star Trek and about the, the future and, and all this stuff. And um, he would, um, he would t- tell everyone that this pilot, which he had a black and white copy of that he would show. Um, he would tell that this was not picked up because it was too cerebral. That's what the, that's what they told him after they watched it. It was too cerebral. Which, you know, is a fabulous way of playing your audience. You guys get it, but network executives are a bunch of idiots, aren't they? Which is part of the reason he was never endeared to network people. That's not why they didn't pick it up. They didn't pick <laughs> it up because it was had too much sex in it. It's, it's, he, the whole story is about, you know, trying to get Pike to, to, to have sex with this woman. About their, their fantasies and their erotic. <laughs> It's like he's playing it as close to the line as he thinks he can for television. But this is Roddenberry. He's got some ideas about sex, one of which is that obviously there are some women out there who who really want it, even though, you know, I mean, some really old fashionedly awful ideas, which, you know, that line 
where the, the starship captain in, on Orion is saying to Pike, he's funny how they are on this planet. They actually like to be taken advantage of. It's like, oh, oh, that is, oh. You know, um, yeah, yeah. and it 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 definitely has its icky moments, <laughs> and yeah. yeah, the whole that yeah, the sexy green lady club, not not being kind of um, not being its finest moment. I I I, th- I thought it was I thought it was a bit surprising because Star Trek is. Because Star Trek went on to kind of break, it did break some barriers, and it and it is uh, recognised for pushing some, by the standards of the time, progressive um, changes. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have when you have that kind of thing in this episode, or um, what's the phrase that they use about you? Unusually strong female drives. Yes, yes. I think is the that's the same thing that you're talking about, and and I, I suppose apart from the kind of strange language of that, I don't. I mean, it it's not the fact they're recognizing the female sex drive. It's the what's icky about it is the kind of there's an all the females love Pike, you know, Vina, but also <laughs> yeah. number one and and Yeoman, and Pike himself is really quite central to this episode. I mean, I was surprised because I expected it to be more of an ensemble piece. I certainly recollect the episodes I've seen as having stronger supporting characters than this one did. Mm. But Pike has to carry quite a lot of the episode. And yet, besides all of the kind of issues of him being this rather uh, sombre and self-pitying character, he's also himself not... You know, he it, it it it's not just the Orion sex slaves. It's also the fact that he can't. I mean, when is this set? When is this set? <laughs> I I know the whole the part the idea of how many centuries in the future? Cap, it's like the twenty third century. Yeah. Okay, so you Probably know, early we, we are looking at another couple of hundred years, and and the guy is still surprised and getting used to a woman on the bridge. It's like. Yes, they, that line's terrible. They couldn't. Yes. they couldn't foresee in 1964. And I know it's not about that. I know it is about what they could persuade the audience of then, and and particularly, well, you know, with so he, America being somewhat conservative. Here's the thing: he's he's making a big deal of the fact that he's put a woman on the bridge. That that is that is Roddenberry pushing his his equality thing, but then he does it in this way where Pike makes that, that line about, I can't used to have women on the bridge. Oh, sorry. Number one. I, I didn't mean you. We don't think of you as a woman. It's like, Oh, Oh, you're, you, it hurts. It, it hurts. And, and I think this, I put this before I forget it. This is this sort of weirdly, out of time view the rod one of the things that i think if you put how they treat some aspects of sex in star trek in this context it suddenly makes sense and that is this gene roddenberry was a horn dog okay that that is that is not open for debate <laughs> like more than one of his mistresses got cast on star trek 
because they were his mistresses. Um, he, he was, and then he had mistresses after he married his one of his mistresses. I mean, he was just he was a horn dog. That's the way this guy was. He was he bought into that whole sexual liberation, and you know, I don't think he was quite at H.G. Wells's free love idea, but it, you know, basically he was he was in that camp, and he seems to believe that I am a horn dog. All men are a horn dog, and equality is all women are horn dogs too. And therefore, <laughs> when I present when I present them in my world, they're up for it just as much as the men are, and love that whole thing. And suddenly, kind of sixties start to see the pieces. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he, you know, if they want to dress as sexy and wear little short outfits because they want to show the guys they're up for it, that's because they're liberated and they're. <laughs> It's you know he's not seeing them as being exploited sex objects. He's seeing them as being empowered, and <laughs> time has not played that out very well for him. But, but yeah, I'm. Yeah. But I feel like that probably gives him a little bit too much credit because I think that they he the 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 attitudes that Pike himself has don't necessarily reflect a genuine kind of parity in in that respect even if that was his view in his view of equality it doesn't it doesn't seem to kind of quite mesh with the fact that our hero is having issues with seeing you know women in positions of Mm. power on his ship for example it's only that you know we're Women can have a sex drive as strong as men, but providing they still know their place and providing that they are also <laughs> shown to kind of to, wow. to, to basically it, find Pike irresistible. It is definitely uh, it is straddling a, a, a line and it's not on the right side <laughs> necessarily of the line there. Yeah. Uh just to, to, although, yeah, it was, it, it, was to say, it was also a little too, they, they also did consider it to be a little bit too thinky talky. And, uh, but, but the, you know, the sex aspect of it uh, was a little concerned. They were worried about Spock looking too much like Satan and that the, nobody in the Bible belt would, would go along with it. Um, they, they, all right. Well, um, but they loved it. They loved this pilot. They actually loved this pilot because there is no way on earth they would have ever said, oh, well, you spent $600,000 of our money and we're not going to use this. We're going to give you another $400,000 to make another one. It, it, it doesn't work like yeah. that unless yeah. they thought this had, had, had real potential. They just didn't think this worked out the, the quite, you know, and they had some notes. Um, and, you know, one of which I think, I think they wanted to bring Jeffrey Hunter back, but his wife or his girlfriend, I forgot which it was at the time, didn't want him to do it. And so, because it took them long enough, they didn't have the option on him. And so they had to recast and they went to change the character. And that's where we got to William Shatner. And they also told him to get rid of uh, number one. You you do, you do appreciate just how good William Shatner is. I think from, from Jeffrey Hunter's performance and the character of Pike in, in this, it, it doesn't really elevate the episode. And I think there's something about, because, because my recollection of the, Again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but the but the episodes were 
they they did also kind of get quite cerebral and they were not afraid of being quite talky but no. the 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 kind of campness and lightness of uh Shatner's performance um and and you know Nimoy having a and and the other supporting cast who we don't see in this right they 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 all they all bring uh more of a balance i i guess to this yes. i i i think it i think it was really kind of quite interesting and and ambitious in the ideas that it takes on the the whole you know the whole concept of illusion the kind of quite challenging ideas that everything you see might actually be false and the kind of values that are embodied in what uh you know what what we as human set store by especially when you are presented with the opportunity for essentially as you know unalloyed pleasure as as as, mm-hmm. as kind of wonderful a paradise as you can possibly imagine and by actually presenting that as a as a kind of real offer then kind of highlighting how how we value other things like uh i guess authenticity um <laughs> so in that in that sense it's kind of struggle well it's 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 pushing it's pushing against the the kind of ideas around uh, utilitarianism i guess because you know it it's it's setting aside the idea that it's just about the greatest good and saying there is something more serious there and in a way i also wonder whether it's it's kind of touching on the whole problem of evil with that whole primitive feelings bit and the mm-hmm. the idea that there is this aspect of humanity which is not at all positive and th- you know things like hatred which we consider to be uh quite negative but then it explains their purpose i guess it's it's almost like the the idea of the authenticity and the the freedom that we get by being being able to resist the illusion that's all about having free will and mm-hmm. free will is is the answer to the problem of evil and the idea that well if you have a a an all-powerful uh all all uh all-knowing god then why would you have evil at all in the world um so I think there's a lot in it. It's, it's it, the ideas are very interesting. I, I one of the things I can see when I watch the episode um, that it bothers me more on repeat viewings is just like Pike, we actually can't know what what we have seen is real. So, for example, he's mm-hmm. in his cage alone, and then he appears in Rigel, and then he's back in his cage. But now he's back in his cage with Vina. Is Vina really in his cage? Was Vina in his cage all along and he couldn't see her? <laughs> like, are, are, did, were they sharing an illusion? Or in the illusion, was that really Pike's illusion of Vina so that when he meets the real Vina, he'll already have a shared uh, uh, frame of emotional attachment to her? It's like maybe maybe they're all they're separately in their cages and they literally never physically met. We don't know. I love I love all the the kind of the way in which they play with that and and this kind of sense of being in the matrix because it makes it more frightening and it also it, it it's more exciting when they reveal things like it's not just the illusion creating 
a, a belief that something is there that isn't like you know the camp on the planet of on the surface of the planet or the illusion of being on Rigel 7 but it's also creating illusions to see things that aren't right well but to hide things that are there like blasting the the mm-hmm. the doorway or the or the or the screen out of the way and ultimately just how helpless you are if you can't trust your senses like when they say they're going to destroy the enterprise they're not going to destroy the enterprise by having any super duper weapons or whatever they're just going to stop you from being able to prevent its destruction mm. by essentially taking control of all of your senses I, I i think it's it's really kind of it's executed in a way that is genuinely terrifying <laughs> i I'll, I'll agree it's it, it makes me think of that whole thought experiment is how do you know you aren't a brain in a jar somewhere mm-hmm. you know and and just having sensory input fed into you through through uh it's like you don't you can't there is no <laughs> there is no way around it um and and i can i can see how that partially that the network execs might go that's a little the idea is a little high concept there for uh for afternoon evening tv where they're expecting gun smoke or or wagon train and you know but obviously they liked it you know you know it's cool i mean the rabble obviously they can't have this but this, this is good let's try again here's my here's my problem with that right it's the way in which it's resolved it's 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 the it's the moral of the resolution of the story which is on the one hand the idea that the aliens recognize that the humans have this unique hatred of captivity which ties into all the things i was saying about about the valuing autonomy and free will etc etc and that that being much more important than having the illusion but you then have vena and (laughs) rather than taking vena with them she gets the she she gets the illusion back and it it's worse it's worse the fact <laughs> that they give her her illusion uh-huh. back because being ugly is i'm not i wasn't sure that she was old you said in the recap she was old but i thought it was just they put her back together wrong and she was ill you know no she was old uh when when number 1 and yulman colt being down uh one of the first things that number one said was when when she was insulting her intelligence she said well let's do a little time calculation shall we there was a vena listed as an adult crew member on board the columbia when it crashed 18 years ago and adding 18 years and then they cut her off so she's at least crewman age plus nearly 20 years so yeah she's old she's old or, or older well, than what the illusion is that she she had um, yes, old. Uh, um, well, well I've got to. I part. I partly what question is because the whole episode is about procreation. That whether yes, she is fertile. <laughs> so yes, yes, I have menopause listed down here on one of my uh, notes. It's <laughs> it's possible that they just didn't know because they're too stupid to to figure out what a human was at least supposed to be bilaterally symmetrical. Um, yeah, I and I. <laughs> but so here's my question to you in that same vein on here is when she walks back into the thing with her illusion of beauty and her illusion of Captain Pike, 
does she know that's an illusion of Captain Pike and that she's got her own, you know, David Tennant copy of him? Or or oh. is that can she not see the real Pike standing there? And, you know, this one's like, well, you know something, Vina, I, I fall in love with you and I want to stay on the planet with you. And then they walk off and she's all happy for the rest of her life. It is it 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 it, it raises more questions there. It, it is a, a an odd end. And of course, can't they fix her? I mean, take her back. Maybe a proper doctor could do a little bit of work. Dr. Boyce could, you know, put that arm well, back no, in the I right mean, spot. <laughs> no, that's that's not the point. And and to be you know, to be honest, I I hated this just as much with um, you know, in Journey's End with the cardboard mm. cutout David Tennant, as we probably discussed at the time. Yeah. For <laughs> for for kind of similar reasons. And and it does almost appear like that would have been influenced by this or it it's it's because of the lack of authenticity. The issue here is they make a big deal about how important authenticity is. And then in Vina's case, they make this exception where she has to have her illusion back because of the horror of being ugly and possibly being old. And it's uh-huh. it, it's like up to that point is like, no, there is absolutely nothing that would make me accept the illusion. It's the it's the it's the most important thing that I have you know knowledge knowledge of myself and my own autonomy and my own free will and then suddenly being a woman but not pretty ah well that's you know or or else either that or only when they say you know there is this unique hatred of captivity among humans they mean well human men obviously women don't count (laughs) but well but i suspect i suspect it's not that i suspect it's that it you know, it's it's just so bad being a woman and not being beautiful. <laughs> well, Susan Oliver is very beautiful um, when she's not uh, she's not made up like that. Um, but um, yeah, and so trying to put it in context, she does point out that after years and years and years of keeping at her and tricking her and and playing illusions on her she's given in she's fine this is this is my life i'm in they own me she says those words they own me and i do think that we're supposed to see pike slipping but at at slave girl point i think we're beginning to see pike that in 10 years he'll be fine with it too i i i I do think that there is um and, and in a way that's kind of a mixed message but i think they would win it destroyed their civilization for this almost exact same reason that the power of illusion is just too, too overwhelming. And yeah, it does kind of fly in the face of the message. You've got to, you've got to resist. You've got to have reality. That's all there is. It, it, it doesn't answer. It doesn't answer that very well uh, in this show, but it, it definitely beats the drum for, reality is the best hmm. and yeah unless you're uh, and yeah a woman over there is that um yeah i did have down here that the whole menopause things they realize that avina really is old she might not be able to have kids anyway and and where did they get their 
you want you want to see 1960s television in action? Where did they get the dumb idea that Pike only had to pick one? <laughs> right? I mean, why don't they just bring down the whole damn ship? Well, I guess, I guess, I mean, there are two possible answers to that because I, I had the same question myself. And I guess one of them is that they are, they're trying to create an environment in which they're, they have a happy couple. And so that means building something around their human fantasies, but also living within the boundaries of, of I guess, the sort of human social conventions. The other thing was that when they get back to the surface of the planet they, and, the, and the others come down and say, this is what we wanted all along. We want you to live on the set. And that actually it wasn't about getting a couple and they do want everyone down from the ship. So uh, yeah. I wasn't sure about the answer to that. I mean, I don't know how many women are on the ship. There are 203 people, according to Pike, in this particular version. Some of them are women. We saw three uh, on mm-hmm. the ship. No, we saw four because we saw one in a miniskirt walking in a quarter. So there's at least four women on the ship. So at the very least, they could bring down all four women and, you know, maybe Pike and one or two of the other guys um, just, you know, to, to other, spice up the genetic diversity to die. No, 198. Yeah. Or put them in cells where they can probe their memories like lab specimens for fun. So, I mean... The, there's just no reason for not wanting all of the humans down there, even if only some of them are used for breeding purposes. But that's, uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I, I want to mention a couple of things about Pike's personality. One is uh, how good is he in terms of figuring stuff out? Because there, there are two instances in this episode that I, I wonder when I watch it on repeat, I don't think I really noticed it. In the beginning, when the radio waves are coming towards the ship and the whole ship's on alert, and everybody's like, oh, deflectors aren't stopping it. Oh, should we fire weapons at it, Captain? He clearly knows what it is. He he's clearly knows what this is, because you can see, not only is he countermanding any stupid orders that aren't going to do any good, like, no, stay your course, uh, but he's also furtively looking around at the people on the bridge to see who's going to figure it out first. And then once they pass through it, then he gives them a little lecture. Oh, well, radio waves were triggered to do things like this in the ship. So, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting command style. Um, I, I'm not going to give you the information. I'm going to let you work it out yourself. But Pike obviously understands. And then um, the other thing that's a little, my question is, when the two women being down and he takes their lasers from them, and they do call them lasers, not phasers in this, at this stage of the game. He checks their power levels. Thank goodness he didn't test fire one and accidentally shoot Yeoman cold. Um, it's like, what would have happened there? Would she have vaporized out of existence and they would have created an illusion of her standing there just so that he wouldn't know that he'd shot her? Um, but he then takes the weapons and he, he, gets his, he gets his mad on, right? And he flings them over there right to the spot where he knows the secret door is. And then from that point on, he's maintaining his mad on. Did he do it on purpose? Did he put them by the door intentionally so that the, oh, the lotions yeah. would pop through the door and, and go, ah, I'm going to get up. Why don't they just create an illusion that they didn't open the door? Yeah, that would be sensible. <laughs> Same is true with the food earlier they just i mean vena appears to pop in and out i assume that when vena pops in and out she's either already there and hidden from his senses or they bring her in through the front door put her there 
keeping Pike in the dark, and then Pooh, she's there. (laughs) That part, it's like, uh, or do they have some sort of transportation device? Maybe they do. It's not impossible that they have some technology and they're they're using it to transport them around. Because uh, the point it is, is uh, yeah, sorta. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, yeah, if you if you can control what you feel is reality, why do you need to worry about uh, uh anything like that? I mean, there doesn't even need to be a cage on the door at all. It it, it oh. was never there. <laughs> right? He, he doesn't. Uh, he Although I, I think, in a sense, that could have just been there in order to test it, test his reactions to mm. it being there, because mm. they spend a long time in looking at him bashing himself against it. I, I do like, uh, you know, they they show a couple of the other creatures in the in the cages. Those are both, I think, from Twilight or from Outer Limits, which did a lot of creature costumes, and they just got him in at the studio and. You know, showed him the thing. But the, my favorite is the third one down, where just somebody is doing a finger, fingers of spider like shadows down in the corridor. I thought that that's brilliant. <laughs> that is a brilliant cost thing uh, measure. And this episode did run two hundred thousand dollars over its four hundred some thousand dollar budget. So I mean, it was it was fifty percent over. It, it's it's uh, okay. Yeah, they really yeah, did, and like they still it, went back. Commission another pilot, yeah, yeah. Well, they had to do. I mean, they had to make everything from scratch. They had to make the ships, the costumes, the sets, the planets, everything. It, it, it's that same argument we get with Doctor Who, and it's a fair, fair dues. You go to a new place every week, or you start up a show, you've got a lot of expense wrapped up into that. And for a show like Star Trek, they couldn't, they couldn't use a stock of anything, N- nothing. You know, except maybe a chair on the bridge here and there, but it, it just it, it it's it, it's enormously costly, and they have to recoup it in in later episodes. And of course, the second pilot had all that stuff already uh, lined up for them. So um, I, I should mention, as, as in that cost cutting cutting thing, I said this was episode was lost. The reason it was lost is because in the first season of Star Trek, they. And in all seasons of Star Trek, because it is an expensive show and it does a lot of work uh, and a lot of TV shows, they've got a production schedule they have to keep up to and they couldn't. It takes longer to shoot, takes longer than anything, and, and they fall behind and they, f- and they go over budget and then they run out of money. And at some point during the course of the first season, they said, we got a problem. And Roddenberry or someone in the studio said, well, what if we take the cage and even though it's got a totally different crew, and what we'll do is we'll cut up bits of it. We'll make a story about Kirk and Spock, because Spock's the, the theme that runs through these two. Kirk and Spock and Spock doing this rescue thing for Captain Pike. And it involves the events that happened 14 years ago when the Enterprise visited Talos for back when Pike was the captain. And they have a, they have a, a, a basically a trial. And during that trial, they replay this episode, cut up hmm. with bits of with bits of removed, because then they can get a two part episode out of Star Trek, two episodes for the price of one plus the sunk money that was in the original the original pilot. That episode is known as the Menagerie. It's the only two part episode of the original series, and it's what people knew Captain Pike from. And they remove some of the more problematic lines. Not all of them, but <laughs> some of the more problematic lines. They changed the ending 
a bit. Um, it, you know, they did they did some Good. stuff to it that was well. Eh. <laughs> uh, anyhow, they um, so you know in those days what they did like Doctor Who they didn't care they just cut up the original negatives, spliced them all ah, in there, yes, threw away the parts that were cut out. It's a it. I mean. I'm not sure Doctor Who did anything similar, but certainly with well, the Avengers. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I. But I mean, cut, cutting cutting yeah. up a, an episode to make another episode. Oh, yeah, yeah with yeah. with with the Avengers when they first cast Linda Thorson, they had they uh, brought back the director whose name has temporarily slipped out of my mind from the the Honor Blackman series to to um, to make the series uh, the producer i should say and they they felt it wasn't working out they fired him off it and they i mean essentially they they started with whole new episodes but they they still had these various episodes that he had <laughs> they had made with hmm. linda thorson wearing a blonde wig and because that was oh. she was she was going to be blonde and all that and and so later in the season, you see those episodes where they actually film scenes of her, I should say, wearing a blonde wig. They actually dyed her hair blonde, and then I think it all fell out. Um, but they actually have scenes with her in the show putting a blonde wig on so that they can then intercut it with the surviving, hmm. with the bits of footage yeah. that they, they felt they, they could use to make into a decent episode. So I, I think I think there are examples of that kind of what what should we call it um thrifty television Pre- making thrifty, yes the, yes upcycling That's exactly why they did it the the problem being is there is now no more print of what the original episode was like there is gene roddenberry's black and white print that he had made for himself that he would show around on the college circuit so initially what they did was they took they spliced back all the pieces of the cage that they had and they spliced in the black and white bits that Roddenberry had, and they did a special on a VHS type somewhere that said, you can finally see what the episode, and it would actually shift back and forth between black and white to color to show you what was missing, which was actually an interesting watch to see what they would remove. And I'm pretty sure lines like, funny how they are on this planet, they actually like to be taken advantage of. Pretty sure that one was gone. I'm not entirely sure the one about Pike saying I can't get used to a win on the bridge was gone, though. I think that one may have still been in there. But, you know, that was that was 14 years, 11 years ago or whatever it was. So so it's a long time before Star Trek proper. Um, And then somebody at a film archive found a can with all the snipped up bits of the the negatives, but no sound. So they took that and they combined that with what they had from the Roddenberry black and white print. And they combined that with what they had from the original show. And they managed to put together what we're seeing, which is the complete episode with one minor difference. The keeper is played by a woman. This is the thing Roddenberry wanted. The voice is done by a man. It's done by an actor called Malachi Throne, who uh, was, has a very deep voice, actually. Um, but he was kind of doing a funny high-pitched voice uh, for it. But it's still obviously Malachi Throne. And he was then cast as a character in The Menagerie. And so when they had him talking and then they had the Keeper talking, it was like, oh, this is wrong. (laughs) People will notice 
So they electronically processed the voice of the keeper. So no one is hearing what the keeper actually sounded like in the cage. It was deeper, apparently. It was meant to be more manlike, a female actor and, and a male voice actor doing the part together. Even though he was doing he was he was doing a bit of uh upping it, it was still obviously much deeper. Uh and, and I don't well, why know. Why did that they I've cast him it. in an episode in, in so, the, no. in the same I, I don't mean, know. <laughs> They could have cast him in, in a bunch of different episodes, but instead they cast him in that one. I don't know. Maybe it was cheaper because he's already got a credit on that episode or something. Like, oh, sorry, you've got to come back in and do some pickup work for this one. Like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> I have no idea. I really have no idea. It's, uh, I, I heard, heard about that. I'm like, you, you, that's the dumbest casting choice. So that's but so you'll never actually see the exact this is a reconstruction of the episode, but it is apparently the the episode with with that one uh, uh, distinction. Let's see. I, I don't know that I have anything else. I had one thing, but it turned out it was Talos, not Telos. So I wasn't. Oh, actually, <laughs> Talos. Yeah, I just I had a moment of worrying whether they would be at risk of bumping into Cryons or Cybermen, but uh, but no, that was all right. Um, no, just in terms of recycling stuff, I think the question I had for you was, what about the cast? Do we see any of these the the, the, the characters who are obviously the regular crew? Do we ever see any of them again? Apart from there's one I recognise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're Major Barrett. Yeah, you. <clears throat> um, no, Spock is the only character that carries forward into the next the next iteration at all. May, they they told him to to get rid of number one. So get your mistress off the show. They didn't want her in the first place for because she was his mistress, partially because that was yeah, and she wasn't big enough. No one knew her. He was definitely casting her because he, he was, was trying fine, to, to bigger. She was fine. <clears throat> I had no problem with it. Um, but, uh, you know, they told him to get rid of her. They also told him to get rid of Spock um, because they didn't like the devil ears. <laughs> but uh, according to his talks on the college circuit, he he said, uh, I chose to uh, keep Mr. Spock, keep one and marry the other. And so... <clears throat> that that I I've heard him say that I chose to keep one and marry the other, and because I could not have done it legally the other way around, um, and <laughs> 1970s, <clears throat> and uh, so they did. They kept Spock even though they were doing well. He got rid of number one, and then he turned around and rehired her as Nurse Chapel uh, later. Put a and blonde wig on her so she wouldn't recognize. They wouldn't recognize her. But she comes back as another character then, a completely different character. Yes, right. Right. And she's also the I mean, voice the, of the computer through Star Trek, through all the way through uh, Star Trek uh, Voyager, all the way into the 80s. And I, actually, she may have been doing some of it on Discovery before she died. I'm not sure. But she, she was always. You the mean voice of the computer. you mean they had a voice of the computer in the original series and she was voicing it? Yep. Did yep. they have a computer in this? I didn't notice. The computer. No, they did not. They did not. Right. It doesn't come in until first season somewhere. But yeah. They, she was the voice of the computer. She's she's the original voice of Siri. <laughs> I'm all, I really well, wish I mean, that somebody had hired her to do that so that you could have Siri speak in that voice. That would have been, God, that would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a nerd's dream. 
I, I mean, it, it one. So I mean, Spock is interesting in the sense that it's fairly in, it's fairly obvious that he is. You, you already get the fact that there is this way of distinguishing him as an alien from the the other humans, and he he stands out, I think, in the show for some of the for his his appearance becoming, I think, even more distinctive. It's fair to say, yes. But also, he his non-human tendencies are a kind of important theme, I guess. Mm-hmm. In I guess contrasting some of the human tendencies uh, and hi- highlighting what makes us human, I guess, in some ways. And, and you know, that, that, that kind of character development. And what I was wondering about the writing of this episode was, is, that, is all that intention already there, but it's just being saved for later? Because it's a, he gets, no, he gets not, nothing much to do. There's no real development. And you would have thought with a character as distinctive and interesting as that, I mean, actually, in fact, you, I was a bit surprised there wasn't a little more done, given it's a pilot episode, to establish and define the other characters more. There's a there's a bit for Doctor Voice, I guess, but but uh, very little for Mister Spock, and it's odd, yeah. isn't it? Well, it, again, looking at it from hindsight, where Spock became such an important character, absolutely. Uh, I think the other thing that has been mentioned. Um, Number one was supposed to be the unemotional character. She was supposed to be the one that hides her emotions and doesn't make and makes logical choices and is not swayed by emotion. And the character of Spock is that way, but secretly has emotions. And they even say that in here. Number one pretends not to have emotions, but that actually she does. She just suppresses them. That's mostly an act. So yes, that aspect of it to have someone unemotional and logical on the ship was but there. she is human right? it was but she, as they don't just mention repressed. one way or the other just just a repressed you know you have to be that way to be a woman and be a command officer on a ship you can't have those doggone emotions <laughs> i can i can totally say that. spock yeah, is obviously emotional yeah spock is obviously emotional he's smiling at those leaves you know which i I like that scene actually um it kind of reminds me of the scene in forbidden planet where they get off the ship and they go wow dig that sky man this is kind of like oh alien planets are cool (laughs) like it it still has that sort of uh effect to it but um, yeah maybe he's been smoking some of those leaves yeah um he's also shouting at one point in, in the episode so it yeah he's He's not the same character. He's the same name, same actor, but it really, they rejiggered that. And in the menagerie, to the next. Mm-hmm. Do do they explain? They that? don't do mention they that. that he's just younger. Do they... He's just younger. <laughs> I mean, you know, not I'm younger, a little more emotional. It's supposed to be eleven years. It's eleven. Is years. is that is that because Vulcans don't visibly age? Yeah. Well, they are. They do live hundred. Uh, well, more than a hundred. Okay. Possibly close yeah, yeah. to 200 so years, actually. Sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and you know, what the, 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 the canon that has been made previous, subsequently, I should say, is that younger Vulcan Spock was less in control of his emotions. And I should mention, they are now making Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is Captain Pike of the USS Enterprise, Mr. Spock, number one, and other crew members that are all women, you know, like no man on the bridge now, except for Spock. <laughs> like they, they, they went all in. They really went all in on that. 
uh, which is fine. Um, and and Pike is not nearly. I'm just as wondering. Pike, so I'm just wondering. Casting. Well, yeah, but Spock is a lot more emotional is, because he's is, younger. Is 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 Pike is Pike still having difficulty adjusting to having all these women on the fridge? <laughs> no, no, he seems fine with it. I think I think they I think they went this route just to uh, it's like Pike. You're going to have the most women on a bridge ever. There's, yeah, no, he's 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 very much a modern mold of a starship captain, not the 1960s mold of a starship captain. Um, and I quite so like it. It's uh, not and, entirely and, in continuity. No, and it was 55 years from the pilot to that becoming a series. So I mean, he, he gets some time to rejigger the the premise a little bit. Um, and, and and John and I are are going to be doing Strange New Worlds at some point in the future. So. Uh, put that out there but uh this obviously will go i've got a lot of star trek to get through before i can watch that even i haven't reached that up to that point the nice thing is you can just skip whole series and go you know i don't actually need to see um deep space nine or whatever i'm not sure i can (laughs) you've got a lot of star trek to go through there like i i want to say that's got to be 500 episodes um at at, yeah got (laughs) to Gotta be close to five hundred episodes. That's a lot. I, I don't know that I have anything else. I, I I think that this shows a lot of the premise of the Star Trek idea, and I think it's cool that they don't they don't spend time explaining the gadgets. Right? I mean that 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 is one of the mm. nice things about this episode is that they just you know this is the world. Uh, you don't need to. We don't need to go. Wow, this is cool new communication device we've got here that just flips open and you can talk into it. You just don't do that. <laughs> they just they just treat it like this is the universe that they live in and go. And I I I I really appreciate the way that they did that because a lot of pilots would not do that. And you know, for the time, especially since it's so fanciful. I mean, how could you understand it um, if we don't explain it to you? So uh, I. I, I'm, you know, I'm going to say I like Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, I think he's a square-jawed Captain Lung guy, but he is so intense and sulky in this episode. I would have loved to have seen them do something with him, but I'm not going to deny that I am very, very happy that William <laughs> Shatner took over. I, hmm. I, I'm, I may not be a fan of William Shatner the person, but the character that William Shatner embodied in star trek is uh, you know he's a lot more human he's every bit as ramrod upright but he is he's a better take and i think they got the opportunity to to tweak the captain made a big difference to the success of the series it's it i mean it's definitely a lot more there's a lot more color to it i would say Mm -hmm. both you know in terms of the costumes and the campness yeah yeah all right, I don't have anything else if you don't. I don't. All right. In that case, listeners, I I want to thank you for for being with us here in this our 600th episode. Uh, I keep saying that cuz it's like wow, 600 episodes. Uh <laughs> like, but okay, 600 episodes. Woohoo! And uh, and uh, it it's it's been a lot of fun. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure as always. Listeners, I hope you join us all again next time for episode 601 of Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fusion Patrol, we hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol or 
buymeacoffee.com slash Fusion Patrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently doing a special series on Season 2 of Babylon 5. There's over a decade of previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on our website or Twitter. You can also find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash Fusion Patrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.